This is the Irrelevant Information Podcast, a podcast about the importance of the unimportant. I'm Rodrigo Nunez, and today we're going to talk about mountains with names. So first of all, this is kind of a sequel to a previous episode. You can find the episode that I'm talking about in the show notes, but it's the one that I did about Mount Rushmore a couple of weeks ago. You know, that mountain in South Dakota that got blasted to look like four dead white guys and that will remain disfigured for thousands of years. And I still can't get over the fact that the mountain is ruined. Something that existed for millennia before us and will exist for millennia after us is permanently disfigured and we had no regard for either the time before or after us. And the way we interacted, and I mean we as a species, the way we interacted with that mountain is regrettable to say the least. But there are other ways to interact with nature. And in this episode, I'll talk about two examples of one way of looking at our world, specifically geographical features in our world all around us, that I believe is far more beneficial to all of us. If you grew up in a Mexican household in the United States, maybe a first-generation Mexican-American household to be more specific, you've probably seen this one calendar that's usually handed out as a free souvenir from your mechanic or bakery or barbershop. In fact, it's so prevalent, it's one of Mexican-American comedian George Lopez's oldest and most famous bits. We don't have clocks, so we have calendars from every panadilla we've ever been to in our It's always the same picture, the Aztec dude and the dead lady. You know which one, right? But for those of you that don't, the picture in the calendar that George Lopez is talking about is actually a painting by Mexican painter Jesus de la Elguera. And it depicts an Aztec warrior in full warrior armor carrying a dead woman dressed in white. The warrior is looking up to the sky in a very romantic, passionate, almost stereotypical way. And the woman lies loose in his arms, her right arm dangling right above his knee. This painting is based on an old Aztec legend that tells the story of Popo, the man in the painting, and Iztaccíhuatl, the woman. There's a couple of small variations on the story or the legend, but this is the gist of all of them. Iztaccíhuatl was the daughter of the Aztec emperor, and she was beautiful and fair, so her name literally translates to the white lady. The princess fell in love with a warrior, Popocatépetl. Popo was a really great warrior, a captain, and the emperor sent him to battle a rival tribe in Oaxaca. He promised that upon his victorious return with the enemy king's head on his spear, he would grant Iztaccíhuatl's hand in marriage to him. So off he goes to battle. At some point in the campaign, a false report gets back to the home front. Popocatépetl's party has failed and he has died. The princess found out about these bad news and fell into a deep, deep depression. She's devastated. She can't even eat or go outside. In fact, she is so sad that she dies of a broken heart. Some point of time later, Popocatépetl returns to the capital successful with the Oaxacan chief's head on his spear ready and anxious to be reunited with his love. The emperor is shocked to see that he's alive and has to tell him the bad news, that they had received a false report of his death and that his daughter died of a broken heart. So Popocatépetl is obviously crushed as well. 
He takes Itzasiwatl's body and carries her far off from the city, taking her to some mountains away from the city and laying her body on top of them. And he, along with his torch, vowed to keep watch over her and never love anyone else. So he falls to his knee, holding his torch, and just keeps watch over her. Seeing this tragic love story unfold, the gods are moved and as so choose to preserve Itzasiwatl's body forever as a snow-capped inactive volcano. And they grant Popocatépetl his wish to ever guard over her by turning him into a volcano, his torch showing itself as the eruptions and fiery magma within the volcano for the rest of time. So that's the story of the calendar from every stereotypical panaderia, which is pretty awesome, right? But more importantly than that, it is an ancient way to relate to nature and to ourselves. That is an ancient way to admire and keep and honor, and perhaps more importantly, notice the volcanoes. In real life, Popocatépetl and Itzasihuatl are two giant volcanoes that outline the outer rim of the Valley of Mexico, overlooking Mexico City and Puebla and much of the central population center of Mexico. And it's interesting because whenever Popocatépetl starts to throw up smoke, you'll hear news reports refer to the volcano as a man. They'll give human characteristics to this volcano. They'll talk about the temper of men, the anger of men, the rowdiness of men who are trying to get your attention and ascribe those sentiments, those feelings to the volcano. It's truly, really fascinating. These two volcanoes, more than just being things, have become characters. They've become entities. They've become animate instead of inanimate. They have personalities and characteristics and histories. In this way, they've become real to the people of Mexico. They are figures in their life that pop in and out from time to time, and every time Popocatépetl threatens eruption, the story is retold again, and the legend is perpetuated from one person to the next, from one generation to the next. That is the power of stories. But more importantly, the story is powerful because it describes something that seems inanimate as animate right? It seems to have a personality of its own. By noticing the characteristics of these volcanoes and even the shapes of these volcanoes, we as a species have created a story that links us today in the 21st century to Aztecs that lived in the same place since before any European ever set foot in this side of the world. Those volcanoes and the story we share about them tie us to them. And it's all because someone noticed them, the volcanoes. Someone noticed an apparent characteristic and they animated the volcanoes. They assigned personalities and stories to them. In How to Do Nothing, a book by Jenny O'Dell, she talks about the power of doing this, of assigning animate qualities to inanimate objects, especially those that define our geography. Doing so serves as a means to reduce our species' loneliness, especially once we start to observe the things around us and objects that have more in common with us than we may first notice. I see this in the legend of Itztaccihuatl and Popocatépetl, and in the volcanoes themselves. By us giving them this attention, we've made it seem like there's more to this valley than just humans, and more importantly, we've tied ourselves to everyone that's lived in this valley before us.
Odell goes on to quote the book Becoming Animal by David Abram in her book and says the following, quote, If we speak of things as inert or inanimate objects, we deny their ability to actively engage and interact with us. We foreclose their capacity to reciprocate our attention, to draw us into silent dialogue, to inform and instruct us, end quote. That's something that the Aztecs didn't do, right? Instead of seeing the volcanoes as inanimate objects, they saw something in the shape. They saw something in their structure. They saw something in the flare-ups of Popocatépetl and instead sat there and allowed themselves to be drawn into silent dialogue with these volcanoes and created a story, a story that goes beyond their existence into our modern era. And I experienced something similar to what that quote describes last year, meaning the ability of an inanimate geographical feature to draw me into silent dialogue. I experienced it when I visited Haystack Rock on the Oregon coast this past summer. Haystack Rock is a 235-foot sea stack in Cannon Beach, Oregon. Now, a sea stack is a steep vertical column. It's kind of like a giant rock in the sea near the coast, and it's formed by wave erosion. And now, Haystack Rock is, in one word, awesome. And I mean that in the real sense of the word. It induced awe in me. It's this huge monolith rock just there on the shore in the beach, it has grass at the top, hundreds of birds circling over it, waves crashing into its base over and over, and it just takes the beating. If you ever find yourself in Oregon near the coast, please find your way to Cannon Beach and spend some time with Haystack Rock, I implore you. The first time I laid eyes on it, I couldn't look away. Seriously, something about it was so captivating. From afar, the birds flying above it looked like tiny specks. The people near its base looked like little ants. And as we got closer, the specks above it and the ants below it grew some, but not nearly as much as the haystack did. The rock just got so big. During the low tide, the base of the rock is accessible, but for some reason, I didn't want to stand too close to it. I just reached a point where I can make out all of the features in its surface and kind of hear the birds flying above it. And I decided this is as close as I want to get. I stopped, sat down, and just stared at it. And I mean, I really stared at it. For the first time in a long time, I didn't have a soundtrack of podcasts going on in my headphones or music or anything like that. I took off my headphones. I didn't have them. They were like in my pocket somewhere. And I just sat there and looked at this massive rock. It literally had my undivided attention. It captivated me. As I kept staring at it, an overwhelming sense of safety came over me. The rock really made me feel safe. And I think it's because something within me realized that this thing had been here for a long time. Long before any of us were here. Long before we had planned this trip. Long before Oregon was a thing or even the United States. Long before even humanity was a thing or even before the puffins circling around it existed as a species. It's been taking a beating from those waves for thousands of years in this beach, and yet still, it stands there. Seeing tiny creatures come and go around it as the sea very, very, very slowly makes it smaller 
and smaller. Now, I know I'm not the only one who feels this, but I always feel weird saying it. The ocean scares me. It's indescribably massive. It swallows up everything. It's unrelenting. Looking out into the ocean at night especially fills me with this sense of how insignificant I am that truly scares me. However, sitting there in Cannon Beach, the ocean wasn't so scary. Because this huge rock has stood in the face of it forever. And yes, like I said, I know that it will eventually lose and be disintegrated by the ocean, but for now, it's not. And even though I'm still tiny compared to the rock, it made me feel bigger than just looking at the ocean by itself. It kind of made me feel like the rock was winning in a fight against the ocean for now. If this is all weird, trust me, I know. But I often find myself wishing I could go back to that moment. A moment where I was totally aware of my place in time and history and rooting myself in that time and place in this planet with this rock, realizing that we're both entities in this planet. We're both made of the same stuff. In that moment, it kind of stopped being a rock and it felt like it was another earthling like me, like it was something that could only happen on this planet, just like I'm something that could only happen on this planet. I know we've all had moments like this, moments when you're staring at nature, be it a tree or a mountain or a river, and something within you is moved. It's easy to shut it down. It's easy to look away and to dismiss it as if you're being corny or cheesy. But I would encourage you instead to lean into it, to grant that inanimate thing your attention. Don't foreclose on its capacity to reciprocate your attention you could find yourself in silent dialogue with a place or a thing on this earth that is made of the same atoms as you are that will make your existence feel a little less lonely. And that is the biggest sin of Mount Rushmore. It enforces our likeness onto something that is much grander than us and could have taught us so much more to enrich our lives in a much deeper way just like that haystack rock did or like how Popocatépetl and Iztaccíhuatl do to this day something that links us to history far beyond any idea of a country ever has going back to how to do nothing by Jenny O'Dell she describes this concept as the life of a place and goes on to say the following quote beyond the life of the individual beings there is a life of a place and it depends on more than what we can see more than just the charismatic animals or the iconic trees. While we may have fooled ourselves into thinking that we can live cut off from that life, to do so is physically unsustainable, not to mention impoverished in still other ways. End quote. Every once in a while, I just need to find myself staring at a mountain and not one with human faces on it. And I'm sure you do too. That's it for this week's episode, and that was the first kind of sequel to an episode. Uh, like I said at the beginning, the original Mount Rushmore show is in the show notes. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. Listen to both. Let me know what you think. The book that I read was How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. 
read it. It's really good. Leave us a review, share with your friends. And as always, OR4 did nothing wrong. This is the Irrelevant Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.